What if it rained food? What if Earth was a cube? What if we had nine lives? What if bits could fly? It's absurd. If money grew on trees, if we didn't have knees, if we walked through life slightly magnetical, it's absurd. Absurd hypotheticals. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Absurd Hypotheticals, the show we overthink dumb questions so you don't have to. I'm your host, Marcus Lehner, and I'm joined here today by Chris Yee and Ben Storms. Say hi, guys. Hey, I'm Chris. Hey, I'm Ben. Guys, we're doing one just super relevant for the modern high-speed world that we live in today, where we're all on our phones and on our phones more and and just on our phones again. Um, (laughs) What was that? I was on my phone. Sorry. I was trying to think of more things I'm on all the time, but it's really just my phone. And that question is, what if all digital data disappeared overnight? Just to clarify a little bit, when we say digital data disappeared overnight, we don't mean like every piece of program or anything goes away. It's specifically like a digital storage. Yeah, we had that that question like an hour ago and you're like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but basically like like hard drives, you know, flash drives, memory, anything like that. If it's just, you know... It's not like all circuits just don't work. Yeah, electronics still work. Yeah. As long as they don't rely on software that was saved on it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So as as we like to do on these, um, and I'll take the reins for this one, is before we go on to all of the very, very many things that are problematic, we'll start with the small focus and just look at what does it look like for one person to just wake up in this and and the way we're doing this is it just disappeared overnight it's like you know as if a normal day and then overnight everything's wiped so i wake up in the morning and i imagine i'll start off fairly well rested actually um because my alarm will not have gone off (laughs) i'll see the sun up high up in the sky and i'll immediately check my phone and find out hey that alarm is not there also it's basically a brick because my phone will not only have forgotten about my alarm it'll kind of have forgotten its entire operating system (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> See, I don't use my, my phone as an alarm. I have, like, a designated alarm clock. I used to have an alarm clock, um, but it had a motion-sensing snooze button where I could just wave my hand over it and it would snooze for, like, ten minutes. And that was a problem because I basically had gotten to the point where I didn't actually have to wake up to snooze my alarm. Like, I didn't have to consciously, like, even get to the hit-a-button point. It was just, like, a a wave and i couldn't mentally count how many times i had done it anymore it's not a great idea for an alarm clock i I had one of those ones too and i had literally the exact same problem (laughs) it's it was too convenient like you're you you woke up but you didn't it's like the way you you snooze this alarm clock is you snore (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly but yeah so my phone will not tell me what time it is and funnily like looking around my apartment i still won't have any idea what time it is because i don't actually have like an analog clock anywhere and my wristwatch has been out of battery for like years now and stopped so i would have no idea what time it is you can't read the sun yeah i can look outside and see the sun and be like well it's late winter right now so it's gotta be no i would not know what time it is (laughs) also i wouldn't even know what day it is like i could remember what yesterday's date was but i don't have a calendar to confirm it like i don't i don't keep a wall calendar anywhere that has like dates crossed off anything i checked for is like on my phone so that's also I have no idea what time it is when what time day it is. But, you know, I'll probably remember if it's a work day or not. So the first thing I'm going to have to do is uh, go out and shower. And here's a kind of a bit of a question mark. Because plumbing's a bit weird in that generally it doesn't really use any software or programs or anything to manage plumbing. Like, even at a municipal level. Like, the plumbing system at large 
uses just gravity and pressure to to maintain its you know well maintain the pressure to get to your, to get it flowing into your house that said the first step of getting water into the system is the water treatment system which the water treatment system plant does have i imagine some number of programs and routines and software so the real question is is will the people at the water treatment plant have enough manual controls to get them started again so that people still have water and that one's a bit of a question mark i'm gonna go ahead and say like get a day or two like maybe by the morning like by the time you wake up in the morning because if this happens say at midnight in the time between midnight and like well no alarm so like 10 30 a.m <laughs> <laughs> they may have in those 10 and a half hours gotten it in like a running shape like for manual things electricity too is kind of in a similar boat um if, if you want like you know uh, we have electrically heated water, for example, and realistically, I think like like the electric the electric plants will have more problems not having software because I imagine there's a lot more programs managing ele- electrical distribution than there are for water. But again, I'm just gonna throw it out there, and that 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 the water and the electricity are are gonna work because for one, we've done if there's no electricity like a bunch of different times, and it causes a giant host of other problems and kind of takes this question away from what if we lost digital data and more if we lost all electricity and technology. So I'm going to say... Yeah, I don't really think of plumbing when you ask, what if we, what if we lost digital data? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so plumbing electricity, my, my assumption is like by the, like after the first like few hours, they roughshod something together to get the systems back online. So like electricity and water are flowing. So I can have my shower. That's nice. Then go make myself breakfast. Not too many problems here, though my coffee machine will have forgotten what the brew button does, which is sad. <laughs> <laughs> so I will not have, have my coffee there, but that's not a big deal. Then assuming, you know, pretending it isn't 2021 or the off day I do go to the office, let's look at my commute. And cars have a fair number of computer bits nowadays. Um, and I'm pretty sure even like my 2016-ish Honda Civic probably won't just won't start with if you take all the software out of it it does have a push button to go and i imagine there's like some kind of panel or minor program between that push button and starting up the engine that said assuming i could somehow jump my car or i was able to go rent an older car because you know if you have a car from like even like 10 15 years ago there's probably not much that makes it all the way up to the level of software between you know starting up the car and going somewhere the only thing I don't know about is like power steering. I don't know if any of that is controlled by like an onboard. You know, I know there is a computer involved somewhere with some things in the car. I just don't know if that gets hooked in like power steering. So that could be tricky. Yeah, exactly. And it, there's actually a lot of interesting debate going on about like software and cars because I was trying to figure out exactly how many things are software related. And there's actually an interesting, it was a, uh, a recall on Priuses for the brakes where whenever the car would break, it would take some of that braking energy and the energy, you know, the energy that's wasted when you brake and took that and used it to charge the car battery while you're braking. Only apparently the software for it could sometimes cause there to be a delay between when you hit the brakes and they're actually, you know, the actual braking motion because it was figuring out how much power to send to the battery. So there was, so like, you know, people had to bring their Priuses in for a, a recall where they just like, gave it a software update <laughs> so that it could break properly. So there's a lot of interesting debate about like that, especially now with like, you know, more self-driving cars and like lane control and lane assist, uh, stuff like along those lines, which is a whole kind of a whole different topic. But basically the newer your car is, the more problems you're going to have if the software goes away. <laughs> and 
you don't need a super duper old card to have something that's drivable. Um, but it does have to be fairly old. So assuming your card can go, then you have to actually just get to work, which involves, um, well, the street grids. I didn't write, I didn't consider this during my prep, but the street grid, uh, street lights and all that, I'm pretty sure run on software. That's going to be a problem. But navigation is what I looked at. And I'm just going to do a quick sidebar looking at um, at airplanes, actually. That's where I started my research, was looking at if, if planes were screwed. It kind of falls into the same thing as the... The municip- like the municipalities, like all the all the utilities, where planes that are already in the air overnight are actually going to be generally okay. There's enough planes have so many different backup systems, and the last backup system is pilots can manually land a plane without any software in case everything goes wrong. So you can actually get the planes that are in the air on the ground. And then, as far as like slightly longer term, again after the first morning, like planes have enough. Like they can, they use active systems like active GPS to know where they are. And like when they approach an airport, the airport uses again, like live signals to guide the plane into it. So there's really not much that the plane needs for stored data to, to navigate around the globe. So that's, that's just my little sidebar on planes. They would be okay, but we have a car and, um, a car with no ways or no Google maps and no GPS still kind of sucks. If you're trying to find a place, I can make it to work, of course, but assuming I have to like go to a new place. Yeah, you actually have to know where everything is or like read a paper map. That's unheard of. Yeah, <laughs> we we have maps and I'm confident I could use a map. The problem is not so much like I could go, I could make it to like, you know, I could go to Hartford. I could go to a different city. I could dr- do a decently long drive and get, get close. The problem is for me is like the last five miles because the one thing that has, I think, been lost now in our younger our young whippersnapper generation is how to give or get directions like once i get close to a place be like oh yeah i'm looking for knife co where's knife co someone will know where knife co is and then try and tell me how to get there with words and it's just not gonna work i am the worst (laughs) at giving directions i'm really bad at it the problem is i think i think our generation is so much worse at gen for about giving directions because like no one's established the shared landmarks. Like, if you're if everyone's giving directions to each other, everyone knows the main landmarks because you'll be have gotten a whole bunch of directions for like, oh yeah, you go to the big church and you know that's the main town roundabout, or oh yeah, you know the supermarket that happens to be on this intersection that is a popular turning spot. You know where that is. We never develop that mental map of specifically like landmarks. Like a mental map of where I am, like general directions, yes, but like identifiable areas for like just looking at it from the car and being able to know what's there just is gone. Um, so unless someone's navigating me like within like two miles of my home, it um, it's going to be a problem. So I can make it to work. Hopefully I don't have to go anywhere that day. I imagine there'll be plenty of problems at work. I just wrote general chaos at the office because... Well, it depends on your job. Yeah, I have an office. I have a, I have a fairly typical office job we, we work in we work in construction there's spreadsheets there's you know to-do lists there's like tracking there's you know a lot of stuff that we do on like our company server that is now gone and uh yeah that'll be a problem we don't have very many paper backups for things um so us and a lot of small to mid-sized companies will be at a loss of what to do with their missing work product but that's kind of a different that's a little specific to each individual so i didn't go too deep in that but more importantly, the office coffee machine also doesn't remember how to brew. So it's, again, no fucking coffee for me. <laughs> you learn how to slow pour. I'm sure it's not that difficult. Yeah, it's like, 
you can assumedly boil water in some fashion and pour it over the grounds, but there's probably an art to it, and you're probably going to get a couple bad batches of coffee before you get, like, good coffee. Better than nothing. Also, I don't know where I would boil water in my office. Yeah, we don't have a stove. Yeah, we don't have, a, like, a place to actually boil water. We have, like, a hot water. We can get hot water out of our water thing, but there's a microwave. that would be hot enough. I guess some will the microwave work? I don't know. Microwaves are a gray area. <laughs> well, microwaves work very good at heating water. So, yes, you well, could I don't boil know water in the microwave. If it would still work, though. Yeah, we don't know if microwaves work very good at working, so... <laughs> oh, because of the whole they aren't program. Yeah, there's got to be a little, a small set of, like, software right behind, you know, to set the time, and that already ruins you. So, yeah, no, you're... I'm sure someone has a lighter. You can start a fire. What like a toaster oven? All right, I'm not going to start a campfire in the office. <laughs> it's not like the whole world has collapsed. <laughs> you need your coffee. <laughs> You've already established how important your coffee is, so... I guess no one else will have coffee either, so it's going to be a whole group of coffee-deprived office workers, <laughs> and someone will say, what if we just light a fire just to make coffee? And then it'll be like, that sounds like a great idea, because I haven't had my coffee yet. Yeah, you can't do anything else. You can't solve the digital problem without coffee. Yeah, what is it? <laughs> We're not cavemen. <laughs> but yeah, as far as like trying to do my job, all the again, all the office stuff is gone. Phones are kind of an interesting in-between where landline phones can work. Again, kind of like the older they are, the better chance you have where landline like straight landline telephones just work through directly generating the electrical signal with your voice but of course modern days now there's a lot more phones and things that are have an in-between software stuff to make the experience you know modernized so if you got some old phones around you can maybe still make some phone calls and do a little bit of work but again probably a lost day at work back home again um not too much drama making dinner i got water i got electricity my stove works. I can't Google recipes, which is tricky, but luckily my Blue Apron recipes are on physical print cards, so I will not be at a loss. <laughs> so thank you, Blue Apron. One of the few podcasts not sponsored by Blue Apron. They'll have to get on that. So I'm not telling you anything about their delicious meals available for <laughs> $10 per serving <laughs> and easy to follow recipes that teach you how to cook. But on the plus side, you know, after dinner is... If I have any plans that I don't want to go to, very easy not to show up. They can't call my cell phone, and I can very easily just say, ah, it was, on my, it was all on my calendar that I lost, so very easy to not go anywhere that evening. I will say that, yeah, personally, I would have no chance of remembering any plans I had if my, like, phone broke, so it's not even an excuse <laughs> for me. I just entirely <laughs> forgot, like, legitimately. Yeah. So... Again, you, you can make it through the day. Things are going to slowly get reestablished. The, the maps will be uploaded back onto Google Maps. You know, the there'll be some efforts in certain different things. Kind of for the immediate future, I, I have this little section here, planning for the next day. So for my alarm clock, making a new alarm clock will be tricky. The one thing I did see, which could be interesting, is um, the old-fashioned alarm clock before the, the advent of uh, electricity was to use a, like a long candle and put nails in it. And when the candle melted down to where the nail was, the nail would fall and you'd put it like in a, a thin tin dish or a copper dish. So when the nail fell, it would make that clinging noise. So you could try to make an alarm clock out of a candle. It does involve having a fire lit all night long. And I doubt you'll get it right on the first try where to put the nail. So you'll likely just get woken up at like 1.30 in the morning. I think they have like water versions of that too, right? How would you do it as a water version? I know a water clock's a thing. I don't know what it actually in- entails. Hold I on. looked it up because I-, I covered water clocks before in a previous episode. I don't remember how it worked, but I remember I looked it up. 
You just have to set up. You just have to set up a bucket of exactly the right size, and the, and just have your faucet go into it, and have it so that at nine a.m. in the morning, it is, or eight a.m. in the morning if you actually wake up early for work, um, that the bucket fills up and tips over at exactly eight a.m. and then dumps it all on you. That would wake you up. <laughs> There's a water clock for you. For my coffee, yes, you, you can you can try the boil the water and in some fashion pour it over the grounds. You can try boiling water in the morning and do like a manual coffee thing, which who knows how well that'll work. I'm kind of curious. Maybe I try it sometime. It is a thing. People do that right now. It's a niche thing, but it's it's a thing. You do it when you're like campy and stuff. Or people that are just like really into coffee. I just don't think it's going to be better. <laughs> so I'm probably never going to try it. Um, and as far as like driving goes, yeah, I can get some maps, look at some maps. Also good to buy a phone book to get like addresses for restaurants and stores and things. Because even if someone tells me about a store, I don't know what the address is. So good to have an old-fashioned phone book. And if I'm getting the old-fashioned phone book, might as well get the old-fashioned phone to go with it. And then I'm basically back in action. When you, when you, earlier, when you said that Google would eventually upload their maps back up onto Google Maps, like, I got the mental image of them having paper maps of everything and scanning them. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, probably not too far off what they would do. Like, probably the quickest way to generate these maps is to have a program that can scan and recognize maps if you were google oh yeah probably it's not if you were yeah not just me i, I can't do well that. i mean they would they would probably try to build it from scratch again yeah i might like i said i think you start with existing maps because it's kind of hard to map things out from nothing because you have to collect the data again so you, you would use an existing the best existing data set which is likely maps <laughs> and uh yeah that's that's day one with no uh with no digital data ben what do you got so I'm I'm going to I'm going to say that maybe there is one thing that you I mean I you know you know what I was talking about so intentionally overlooked which is hey so what's going to happen to all our money? It's a pretty big question, pretty important. It's under the mattress all in cash. It no is problem. under the mattress all in cash. So so yeah, really though what what actually is going to happen to to literally all of the money? So really what I want to figure out first was just like like if this happened what do banks actually store in paper that they could use to, you know, make any kind of, of recovery from the situation? And the answer is it's complicated. Unsurprisingly, <laughs> unsurprisingly, no bank has, at least none that I could find, have anything laying out exactly what they keep paper records of. So I'm going to have to, I basically had to work off of one, assumptions, uh, and two, regulations. So at this point, there's not really any regulations that I could find that required anything to be kept in paper records. Like there's no regulations that say that, you know, for, you know, X days, you have to have paper records of all transactions or something that just doesn't exist, um, which makes sense because it's actually like super easy and cheap as hell to have redundant digital storage of whatever you want. It's, you know, you, you throw it in three data centers around the country and there's basically nothing aside from just the entire country imploding that's going to stop your data from being available or a stupid hypothetical question or a stupid <laughs> hypothetical question right this is this is the the good old uh when people are playing their disaster recovery strategy and they say well what happens if the entire eastern seaboard is gone and the answer is i don't think anyone cares about our product at that point jim <laughs> But uh, there are regulations that say that if the source of a transaction or something is a paper record, so if someone, you know, if you're still accepting forms for things or things like that, that original copy 
generally does have to actually be saved for some amount of time. However, that's not eternally. It's really just for audit purposes. So it looks like the furthest I was seeing on that was about five years. So there's definitely no way that, you know, a bank could go through their paper records and reconstruct everyone's accounts. It's just not going to happen. So the one thing that is possible is people having bank statements. Now, this is also kind of a corner case because I don't know how uh, how happy a bank is going to be if you come in after this happens and say, hey, I have this bank statement that I have printed out from three weeks ago that says I had this much money. Give me that much money. They're probably not going to do it. I mean, it's pretty it's pretty believable given that Photoshop no longer exists. Well, you know, that actually is a compelling That's argument. <laughs> <laughs> that actually, I hadn't thought about that, that you're right. It would be pretty hard to make a... Uh, make a a fake right now huh hmm so maybe it actually would be more more viable however it's tough to say how people actually would even have a bank statement so well i say it's tough to say it's unlikely that many people would have a bank statement as of march 2018 there were an estimated 32 percent of bank customers who are paperless you know who had who had you know chosen the option send me nothing you know no paper yay i'm gonna say that over the last three years, that like proportion has flipped. That now roughly a third of people are still getting paper statements and things from their bank, just because I know that banks have gotten really pushy about trying to get you to go paperless. Um, and I would guess that. And then most they send people, you paper anyway. They they do, and half the time is telling you you should go paperless, and you already did, and it seems very weird. But <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to say that a third of people even get paper statements at this point. So even if you do. I personally, when I get something from my bank, it basically immediately goes into the garbage. So unless I got a bank statement in the last, you know, maybe two days if I hadn't checked my mail, it's probably already gone. So conceivably, a third of people might have a bank statement. And I would guess that maybe a third of them would even still have it. You know, the people who actually like file those like smart people. So... If we're going to say that roughly 10% of people would have their bank statements, that's not going to be enough for them to actually, like, reliably give everyone their money back, most likely. So, the long story short is that banks are screwed and our money is screwed if it's in a bank. Investments, basically the same story. Pretty much everything is digital now. Same deal with account statements. You might have something, might not. Depending on the bank or, you know, however you're doing your investing, they may honor that. Most likely not. There is one kind of hilarious caveat to the investments all being gone too. So there, there are these, this type of investments called private placement investments, which are basically just, you know, directly investing from a person to a person or, you know, a person to a corporation. Um, so not on an exchange or anything, just literally like you sign a contract with someone saying you own X amount of this thing. That basically always is a signed paper contract. So those would actually exist. Uh, the hilarious caveat is that I actually found a thing saying that at the end of 2019, HSBC, which is a, a British investment bank, was actually transitioning their $20 billion in private placement records to a blockchain technology that will all be digital. Yay! So it's entirely possible that if this had happened, you know, a couple of years back, those would have been fine, but most likely now they're probably also digital. So that's not to say that people might not still have their own copies, but it's less likely than it used to be. So long story short, most of the money is just gone. Um, how much money actually is that? You know, how much money is all of the money in the world? So in terms of of just physical money slash money that's in like savings checking account, money that's, you know, is is 
uh, just available, usable money everyone, you know, people have access to really easily. That's about $37 trillion. That's also only about 3% of the money in the world because the other 1.2 quadrillion is in investments, cryptocurrency, things like that. Cryptocurrency, by the way, obviously entirely gone. So goodbye, Bitcoin spike that lasted. You know, that was fun while it lasted. Oh, man, Bitcoins aren't real anymore. <laughs> hey, there you go. So the next question I have is assuming that, you know, all of this non-paper money is basically gone. What is that paper money actually worth at this point if you have it? So taking those, those values there, that $1.23 quadrillion in total money in the world, if you just look at what is actually raw cash, not US dollars, but just in any currency, the total is roughly $5 trillion if it is all you know converted to US dollars. And assuming, and this is obviously big grain of salt here, big old grain of salt, there's no like value loss or gain or anything that all of that $1.23 quadrillion just basically transfers into this paper money. All your paper money is now worth about 246 times as much as it was before. Ooh. So that's pretty cool. It's my, my, my under the mattress investment strategy has finally paid <laughs> off. Exactly. It's, it has, uh, it has definitely paid off. So I did mention block blockchain briefly. There are a couple other things that are going to happen with blockchain. I'm not going to go into the details because blockchain is annoying. I don't want to have to explain it. The short version is that it's basically a way to track transactions where the thing being transacted stores the entire like list of transactions it's associated with. The idea is that it's you know self-recording and more secure, blah, blah, whatever. But for the most part, right now it's just used for cryptocurrency and it's all going to be just people's investments disappearing however i actually just saw a thing about this a couple of weeks ago the mayor of miami is actually pushing very hard to make miami an incredibly crypto forward city and he's exploring having like the state legislature be involved with blockchain paying employees in Bit bitcoin having the city treasury in bitcoin um, using blockchain for voting for the city, things like that. It basically is transitioning the entire city to be on a blockchain platform. So it's entirely possible that if this happened, Miami just doesn't exist anymore. Like, what? Who does? Well, I mean, it's not like New it's not like New York City is sitting on a big pile of fucking cash in a Scrooge Mansion to like you know pay its bills. But like, why would you go? Why could you imagine just like signing up for like a cush, you know a consistent government job and they're like. Hey, new thing. We're going to pay you in Bitcoin now. <laughs> so to be fair, the answer on all this is that it's not going to happen. And he's just trying to get tech companies to come to Miami. But if it did happen, I mean, that's a decision they made. I don't know. Whatever. So long story short, if this actually happened, if if all these digital records were destroyed, what would actually happen with like people's money and whatnot? Really, the only things people will have records of are possibly bank statements that may or may not be worth anything. Um, and then definitely deeds. So land, homes, cars, I guess boats, you know, that's about it in terms of like things that you can provably prove you have. Provably prove. <laughs> it's not going to lie. Not my best moment. We're going to roll with it. <laughs> so the global economy definitely collapses. And the one sort of saving grace of this is that assuming paper money does hold slash increase in value the people who are best off out of all this are probably the people who are pretty bad off right now who have most of their money in cash so that's cool good old you know wealth redistribution let's go with that 
kind of a happy ending. We fixed the world. Yeah, we fixed the world. Let's say that. Also, Miami's gone, you know? <laughs> Take that, big corporations, and also Miami. It's a fair trade. <laughs> hey, Chris, what did you do? So I decided to look at something that's probably pretty in- insignificant in the grand scheme of things, but I wanted to look at movies because I like movies, and if all the movies, if we don't have movies anymore, then that would be bad. So do we have movies is the thing, is the question that I asked. And to do this, basically I looked at like the comparison between movies shot on digital versus movies shot on film, because there's like historically there, there's been a, an argument between the two. And I found an article on a website called The Pudding, which they do like visual essay style things. And they have one on film. It's called Film or Digital, Breaking Hollywood's Choice of Shooting Medium. And in this article, they analyze the 100 top grossing movies in the U.S. from 2006 to 2017, just to see like which movies were shot in digital and shot in film. And they identified 2012 as a turning point where the majority switched from film to mo- to digital. So I think this article is actually written in 2017. So 2017 is the latest data set that they have. Um, but in 2017, 92% of all films were shot in digital, which is a huge chunk. I mean, it makes sense to me. I mean, they're going to digitally alter it anyway. Might as well start with digital. Yeah, exactly. So I wanted to see like what factors go into if a filmmaker decides one way or the other. Um, one of the big factors is budget. So a low-budget film will tend to use digital cameras more often just because digital cameras are way cheaper than film cameras. Film cameras are usually, like, they're more geared towards, like, elite filmmakers with, like, really big budgets. So 92% of all movies that had a, a budget less than $20 million shot in digital uh, between 2015 and 2017. So that's pretty significant. Then another factor that they looked at was genre. So again, this is between 2015 and 2017, but sci-fi and horror both had the lowest use of film just throughout. So sci-fi had 4% of all sci-fi movies were uh, filmed exclusively on film or shot exclusively on film. And then horror, they had 0%. I don't know. I'm sure there were some some horror movies that were filmed on film. I keep on saying that, filmed on film, shot on film. <laughs> but, and they probably just like rounded down to zero. But again, it's very low. Could be zero movies. I don't know. It could be zero. I don't know. But I'm pretty sure it's not zero. <laughs> All right, Mr. Statistics. And then on the higher end of movies shot on film are drama movies and crime movies. And even though they're they're still on the higher end, they're still very low. So drama ha- drama has 17% and crime has 19%. So it's it's actually a good amount of them considering how prevalent digital is right now, but still. And then despite the genre trends, there are some outliers. Specifically or famously, you might know that Christopher Nolan is against digital and Quentin Tarantino is against digital. So they both only film shoot movies on film. Quentin Tarantino actually said you'd stop making movies if he could not shoot on film anymore. What a drama queen. Jeez. Kind of is. <laughs> I mean, they really is. They're very passionate about it. You should be happy your job is making movies. Yeah. I mean, they uh, people. some people consider them snobs. I like their movies, but I do consider them a little bit of a snob when it comes to that. Oh, yeah. You can enjoy the art without being like, with, while still being like, I don't think I want to hang out with the artist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then there are a few other 
filmmakers that are known for shooting on films that Denzel Washington does, uh, the Coen brothers do, and Paul Thomas Anderson does. But then there are also filmmakers that prefer digital and they, uh, the majority of their movies are on digital. So, and these were like the early adopters of digital. So like James Gunn, he did like Guardians of the Galaxy, he did Slither. Robert Rodriguez, he, one of the earliest movies in digital was Spy Kids. So he did that. And then Paul W.S. Anderson, so the other Paul Anderson. Did they remake Spy Kids? Did they like do like a, a follow-up or something recently? They did a follow-up to Lava Girl and Shark Boy, I think. Where I think there's like, rumors of a Spy Kids one now, too. But I'm not sure about that. He came up with a movie where Shark Boy and Lava Girl were like the parents. Hmm. Yeah. I forget what it was called, though. Yeah, I couldn't remember if they actually did something or if it was just, I'd just seen enough posts of like, oh, where's Shark Boy and Lava Girl now? Like, can you believe that it's the same person? I'm like, well, yeah, it's been like 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're adults now in the same career path. Wild. <laughs> I they do that with all the child stars. Yeah. So, yeah, there are lots of directors that use both. And there are lots of movies that shoot uh, scenes in both mediums. Um, but the trend is definitely going towards digital. So if all digital data disappeared, all these new digital movies would be gone as well, which is a good amount of movies. But we would still have all the old movies because old movies are shot on film because digital wasn't a thing. So what would happen to all these old movies? So we wouldn't necessarily have all these old movies because film decays over time. So we, we have to like preserve them and archive them. One of the ways we archive them is digitally, <laughs> which is not... <laughs> Not good in our case. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's actually most of our films are archived digitally, even though it's technically not really seen as a true way of archiving because it's so rapidly evolving that like previous formats of tech become obsolete. So they say it's not true archiving, but we do it anyway. And the reason we do it is because preserving the actual film itself is so difficult and it costs a good amount of money. So to preserve the film, you have to s store it in freezing temperatures and at low humidity. And once um, once degrading starts, there's no way to stop it that we know of. So all this makes it like relatively expensive to preserve. So you need a crossover. So you need a crossover made by a snobby filmmaker who refused to use digital, and then maintained by a snobby archivist who doesn't believe <laughs> that digital is true archiving. <laughs> yeah, and we've actually lost some movies. Like there, there are movies that used to exist that we don't have anymore, and we've lost forever. The majority of the movies in the silent era we've lost forever. And there's one movie, The Mountain Eagle, which was Alfred Hitchcock's second movie he ever directed is lost forever there's we have like screenshots or like stills here and there i think there's like 20 something stills of this movie but we don't have an, the actual movie anymore which is a shame because if ever, yeah if i'd ever heard of it i'd be sad <laughs> well i know who alfred hitchcock is and he's famous well yeah but do you think his second movie is any good mm -hmm. the first one is good enough to make the well, second i mean one. our first podcast episode was and our second one was probably worse yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's true so Really, the only the films that we choose to preserve will survive, and those will be the films that we will be able to watch. How do we decide which films we're going to preserve? So the National Film Preservation Board has a registry, and every year they decide to in induct a bunch of films into this registry to preserve. And there are 800 movies on the list as of 2020. 
Um, some of these include like Jurassic Park, The Matrix, Pulp Fiction, Titanic, Schindler's List, and Shrek. So a dubious list. <laughs> <laughs> I did find it funny that Shrek is on there. They inducted that in 2020. At least they didn't put, well, I don't know for sure, but at least they didn't put the Emoji movie in, right? I doubt it. <laughs> Highly doubt it. In general, all these movies are actually pretty high quality. I mean, it makes sense we would want to preserve it because it's it's good. So we had this list of 800 movies that we can watch if all digital movies disappear, which is pretty good. The question is, do we have a way to watch them? So to answer this question, I had to look at how we distribute movies. So obviously, streaming is not a thing anymore. We won't be able to watch things on Netflix or Amazon. So we'd have to go to like a physical theater to watch something. So we should be able to watch movies in theaters. But the thing is that most theaters have digital projectors now because digital projectors are just they have less moving parts. Uh, They don't require a physical print to be shipped from like the studio or anything, which is an expensive process. So like to print a film to a reel. It costs around like 1500 to 2500 per print. And then if you're distributing like thousands of copies of that print, it costs around like five or six million dollars to distribute a movie in like a wide release. So you need a snobby movie held by a snobby archivist to pl- be played in a snobby theater. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, in comparison for digital, if you want to distribute a digital movie, it costs about 50 bucks to store a movie on a 300 gigabyte hard drive. And then... If you distribute that to like thousands of theaters, then it costs around $200,000 compared to like the five or $6 million. And the hard drives can be reused. So like the theaters will send them back to the studios and they reuse the hard drives. And because of this, digital distribution is what like it's way favored over projection. And by 20, 2014, 94% of all theaters in the U.S. had replaced their film projectors with digital projectors. So most theaters have digital projectors, and if all digital data disappeared, we would have the 800 classic movies, we'd have Christopher Nolan movies, we'd have Quentin Tarantino movies, Um, and there'd be a few select places that we can watch movies, but the vast majority of theaters are not going to have a way to play them, so most people are not going to be able to watch movies, and in a time of COVID and quarantine, we'd probably all die of boredom, and there'd be no movies to watch, which is sad. That is sad. <laughs> ben Ben turned his around to a, to a positive, even though he t- deleted everybody's money. Yeah, but we <laughs> you talked about movies, movies and you could, and, and you just left us down on a down on a low. No, people like movies. Movies are good. People like money too. <laughs> well, apparently, people <laughs> like movies more. <laughs> if that made you sadder, I'd rather have a lot of money than a lot of movies. <laughs> um. Yeah, that was the end of my. I ended on a sad note. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's see if we can't rally it over with our uh, Would You Rather question. Ben. Yes. This one's a food question, so I'm going to start with you. Nice. Would you rather put ketchup or ranch dressing on everything you eat? That's an easy one for me. That's an easy one for me, too. It's an easy one for you, Marcus. I can go either. I'm, I'm, it's, it's, it's a debate for me. What's, what's the easy for you? All right. In that case, Chris, on the count of three, we both say what our easy one is, and we, we're okay. going to see how how this goes. One, two, three. Ketchup. What? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> here we go. All right, Judge Marcus presiding. Ben, please present your case. I, I, 
Man, I barely even want ranch on the things you put ranch on. Like, <laughs> I mean, I just don't really like ketchup that much. I and guess okay. ranch is like creamy, and I like creamy. But so so <laughs> so ranch is a much stronger flavor than ketchup. Ketchup is kind of just smooth, slightly sweet, tomatoey flavor that's not really bad on anything. I wouldn't say it's great on many things, but it's not bad on anything either. Ranch can be bad on a lot of things. What is good on with ketchup on it that isn't good with ranch on it? I would not want to eat a hot dog with ranch dressing on it. I've done that before. What? What? <laughs> was this yeah. a thing that was sold to you or did I've you do this in, like, intentionally? Like, I've done that intentionally. Like I had ranch. I mean, it was a long time ago. It was in, probably in like high school, but I had ranch in the refrigerator and I was making a hot dog. and I was like, ooh, I'll try that. All right. And it was well, good. You should not put ketchup on a steak, but you should definitely not put ranch on a steak. I'll tell you that. I've never done that, but I mean, I don't think it would be bad. That makes more. Actually, the ranch on steak makes more sense to me than ranch on hot dog. Yeah, I don't know. Hot dog was the first thing I thought of. I don't know. Whatever. I also think ketchup is a stronger taste than ranch. Ketchup is like vinegary. Not that vinegar. Like compared to, I mean, like ranch is creamy and smooth. But, uh. I, Marcus, you have to be the voice of reason here. What? <laughs> we are clearly entrenched, so since you're apparently undecided. Well, I was hoping to hear both cases about which one, why which one right. is which. But Let me put it this way. You're going to have a nice bowl of vanilla ice cream. Would you rather put on some ketchup or some ranch dressing? On vanilla ice cream? I think it's ranch. What? How? <laughs> yes. Also, my audio just definitely spiked, and I'm very sorry. That was just unbelievable to me. <laughs> you're so passionate it seems it seems the less offensive of the two to, to combine with that flavor this is this is madness i don't <laughs> who are you people i don't understand how this is a question like <laughs> i think i'm still leaning towards it because i do there are more things i enjoy with ketchup like it's weird to dip vegetables in ketchup like that is that is the one thing i will say is that is that for like a salad. The intended purpose of ranch. Yes, ranch is going to be better. <laughs> or just like any vegetables, like broccoli or carrots. I guess, yeah. I mean, that is that is true, but I just feel like for the vast Ranch is a vegetable things, dipping sauce. I just, I don't know, like... Like, the closest dressing to ketchup is French dressing, probably. And I always prefer ranch dressing over French dressing. I, I, I just... <sighs> I, I, I just can't. I just can't. I just can't with this. I don't know. <laughs> I've dipped fries in ranch and it's great. The, the the flavors in ketchup are like like some sweetness, some vinegar, a little bit of spice, kind of, and like, I guess, technically some tomato. You can pretty much put those in anything. It's not going to be bad. I've dipped wings in ranch and it's great. I've never dipped ranch in or I've never dipped wings in ketchup before. I mean, if you have like, you'd have like dry wings, probably if you're going to have wings and you just put them in ketchup. It's like having chicken nuggets. They're really annoying with a bone in them, but you could do it. Like that's weird. Wings are going to be better with ranch. I'm going to, I'm going to say that's probably true, but uh, I'm, I'm leaning towards ketchup because one thing that one big, one key food group I don't think is good with ranch is pizza. Uh, actually I have had ranch with pizza because I've gotten wings of pizza and had ranch there and it was there and it's not that bad. Yeah. Oh no, you can have a, you can have a white pizza. You can have a white pizza with ranch. Like you can have. A no, I mean I just I just dipped a piece of pizza in ranch before because it was there. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, what's offensive about that? I don't see what's wrong with that. I think it's weirder to dip pizza in ketchup because it already has tomato sauce on it. 
I mean, it's weird as heck. My grandfather has done it, but it's uh, it's not going to change that flavor profile. Also, one of the things I'm thinking too is ketchup, because it has a little bit of a thicker consistency than ranch dressing, is just a little bit less messy of a condiment. For me, I, I actually don't like when food is too messy because it makes it just cumbersome to eat. So ketchup stays where it's supposed to. Ranch does not. That's that's kind of that's again. It's kind of close for me. I think there's a lot of foods that I would begrudgingly apply either of these condiments to. So I'm gonna. I think I think we've we've laid out our cases. I'm gonna go ketchup. Ben, do you hold your ground? I hold my ground. And my my final argument is that although there are there are things that taste good with ranch, that is true. Ranch is a stronger flavor than ketchup. It's gonna be on everything. I'm gonna get tired of ranch and hate it a lot faster than with ketchup. I disagree that ranch is a stronger flavor than ketchup. That is mind boggling. I don't. <laughs> and Chris, I you and I cannot like talk ranch. about food. <laughs> hey, Chris, Ben, Chris, let you say your piece without interrupting. You. I know, I know, I know. Ranch is creamy and delicious. I mean, I still like. I'm, I never choose ketchup, is the thing. Like, if it's there, then sure, maybe I'll dip it. But, like, if I have fries and there's ketchup, I'll just eat the fries plain. If there's ranch there, I'll dip the, the fries. <laughs> So I'm going ranch. I all right there. There you have it. Two for ketchup, one for ranch. Hot, hot debate. <laughs> this is weirdly one of our more contentious, <laughs> would you rather questions that we've had. If you enjoyed us arguing about ranch versus ketchup, and you want to put your two cents in, you could do it in a review. Perchance there's a platform for you to write words. Um, you can also give us lots and lots of stars on it, and it's a great way to help the show. So if you just comment ketchup or <laughs> or ranch dressing <laughs> in a review for the podcast that's rated five stars that would i think that helps our algorithms right <laughs> sure the numbers <laughs> might show there. up in some weird searches <laughs> but seriously if you enjoy the show um leaving a review is one of the best ways that you can help us grow get more you know help us show up on searches and when people check out check out the podcast then they look through they're like oh how many reviews has it got and if it's like two people don't click on it but if it's like 50,000 people are like, hell yeah, a lot of people listen to this one. So leave a review. If you want to be even more direct with your help, you can always go to www.patreon.com slash absurd hypotheticals and become a patron. Just $1 a month, you get access to our behind the scenes episodes that we record each month to go into how we make the show. We workshop new content. We um, talk about the last month's questions and it's a pretty cool time. So Feel free to join us there if you want even more absurd hypothetical action in your life. But if you can manage to wait a whole week, you can join us next week where we answer the following question. What if you could perfectly train sharks? <laughs>